Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. As usual, we have a packed agenda, and as usual, we will not get through all of it. But one of the things that we want to cover today is a report that you have published, and it attracted a lot of publicity today in the Irish media, rightly so. And it's about the Irish rental market, housing and flats. And that is in keeping with an awful lot of the feedback that we have got from recent podcasts when we've talked about the housing crisis in Ireland. And um, we have had tons of emails, comments on our website, tweets. And I promise I will get round to responding to uh, as many of those as I can. Things have been a bit, a bit hectic lately. Uh, what I will also be talking about today is um, inflation as we often do, because we've had some inflation data out of the UK, the worst numbers in 40 years, and lots of things have flowed from that. The Bank of England is getting an awful lot of stick as a result. Um, the uh, war in Ukraine warrants some uh, attention as well. There are interesting things, as always, sadly, going on there. I want to talk about The Economist's cover for its newspaper this week. It talks about the coming food catastrophe and it has a single picture of a, an ear of wheat, I think it is. Um, I hope I've got that right. And um, I want to talk about the New York subway, if we get time, Jim. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you and tell us about this report that's attracting a lot of attention at the moment. Uh, hi, Chris. How's it going? Uh, as you know, I've 
I've often stated in recent times that to me, from a social and economic and a political perspective, the housing market is the biggest issue in this country uh, by a long mile at the moment. Um, it's the, the, the crisis in the housing market is manifesting itself in escalating house prices, and the lack of availability for people who want to become owner-occupiers. Uh, rents have escalated and the supply of rental properties is very, very scarce. And of course, we have the problem with homelessness and so on. And um, I've also always argued that we need to consider the housing market in a very broad spectrum um, because a lot of the debate you hear in this country on housing would convince you that there is only one part of the housing market that matters, and that is social and affordable. Uh, but there, the housing market consists of those who want to buy owner-occupiers. It, it consists of those who want to rent, and of course, the social and affordable piece as well. So the market has to be looked at um, as a whole. But I considered one aspect of the market in this report, which was carried out for the Irish Professional Auctioneers and Valuers and the Irish Property Owners Association. And uh, I looked at the at, at the rental market and uh, the report was based on desk-based research. Okay, I used published data insofar as we have it from the Central Statistics Office from the Residential Tenancies Board, which is the state agency that regulates the rental market for private investors and the uh, DAP.ie data. Okay, I conducted a lot of interviews with a lot of landlords um, around the country, um, some of whom I would know personally. So uh, I was quite happy I was getting an honest perspective. Um, I looked at some survey data, um, particularly a survey carried out by the IPAB um, a few weeks ago in relation to people's, the, the attitude of landlords and investors in the rental market. And uh, I also used anecdotal evidence. And the one thing I would say is that in any analysis of the Irish housing market, you know, there is a dearth of data. So, you know, one can never be conclusive because there just isn't enough evidence-based data to support anything you say, really. But notwithstanding that, I think, you know, you get a decent picture of what's happening from anecdotal evidence. In relation to the survey piece, uh, I teach a course called Evidence-Based Policymaking. And I'm always, you know, advising that one needs to treat surveys with a very high degree of caution because industry bodies carry out surveys basically to give them the answer that they want, okay, to back up whatever argument they're trying to make. There's always that danger. But um, so I, I looked at the survey results and I, I guess what gives me a significant level of comfort is that these survey results actually were supported by published data by the interviews I did and also by the anecdotal evidence that's out there. So I'm quite happy that the survey data, um, you know, is, is a pretty decent representation of what's really happening out there. And what's really happening out there is that we are seeing two elements of the rental market. One is the institutional investment part that I didn't look at, uh, but we know that the institutional investors continue to be big purchasers of rental properties. I looked at the private landlord, the private investor part of the market, and that is the part of the market that is uh, governed and controlled by the Residential Tenancies Board. And what we see there is that over the last three years, there has been a significant decline in the number of tenancies registered 
and the number of landlords associated with those tenancies. And the reason why I differentiate between the two is because, you know, you could have one landlord with three or four tenancies or whatever. Okay, so but both are declining and it's all indicative of private investors, private landlords are exiting the market and they are exacerbating the crisis that exists in the rental market. And that crisis is demonstrated by the fact that depending on whether you look at CSO-DAF.ie or Residential Tenancies Board data, they're all showing that rents are growing between um, 9.5% and 11.5% year on year, um, the, most, the most recent data. But the DAF.ie, uh, which is, um, is written by and edited by Ronan Lyons, um, the Professor of Economics in Trinity, who has a particular interest in the property area, but uh, his data showed that at the beginning of May, we had just 851 properties to rent in the country. I would stress that these, as far as I understand it, these are properties on DAF.ie. And of course, not all properties are on DAF.ie. But that is the lowest level of the vacancies they have, or supply they have seen since this series commenced back in 2006. And I just use a quote from Ronan Lyons. He said, as ever, in a rental market dogged by chronic and worsening shortage of homes, the only real solution is to increase the number of homes and with more pressure from certain quarters to stop new rental homes being built, policymakers must hold their nerve. And I guess what he's saying there is that just like the overall housing crisis, the rental part um, is definitely symptomatic of uh, a significant demand supply imbalance in the market. And the private landlords, as I say, are exiting the market. And they're exiting the market for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the regulatory environment um, has become incredibly complicated over the last number of years. You know, it's become a very heavily regulated um, marketplace, which becomes very confusing for um, landlords. Secondly, the taxation you know, all of the income they earn is subject to tax at your highest marginal rate, which in many cases is 52%. Whereas if you look in contrast at the institutional investors, they don't pay rent on the rent, they don't pay tax on the rental income. They pay tax, or at least tax is paid on the dividends that these institutional investors pay. And of course, um, many of the shareholders of these institutional investors are outside the country. So that the money leaves the country and doesn't come into the exchequer corporations in many cases. So anyway, they, they, the private landlord would believe that they're being very unfairly discriminated against. And the third factor, and I think is the most important one that's driving them out, is the introduction in 2016 of what we call rental pressure zones, or RPZs. And RPZs basically... Um, identify certain places around the country uh, that are deemed sort of hot rental markets and they place a constraint on um, the amount which rents can grow. And um, the, the latest amendment to that RPZ legislation means that rents cannot grow by more than 2% per annum or the harmonized index of consumer price inflation. Um, but 2% two, two, two is the maximum, okay? And I guess that 2% target was fine 
in an environment where inflation was running at between zero and one percent with inflation now running at seven percent per annum in this country and likely to remain high for the foreseeable future um there is a problem for landlords because all of their costs are rising strongly and um you could have a on, on a street you have in one of these rpz's there is an existing landlord there who is his rent is set or his or her rent is set at a certain level and it can only increase two percent per annum but if a new landlord comes into that market that new landlord gets to set the rent at the prevailing market rate of rents so you can have two landlords operating in the same street who are getting radically different rental incomes and um the, the net result of all of this is that private landlords are exiting the market that is exacerbating the supply and as those private landlords exit the market in an rpz um it's unlikely that other landlords or investors will buy those properties because they will be subject to the um the, the rpz as well so in other words if a rent is set at a certain level and if an investor is coming in to buy that property knowing that this, this is how their rent is going to transpire over the next few years uh on the basis of a low yield they will look for a lower capital value in other words pay a lower price for the house to achieve an acceptable um rental yield and that the net result of this is that those landlords who are exiting the market are not selling to other landlords they're selling to owner occupiers okay and that that of course is satisfying another demand in the market but it is also resenting resulting in a depletion in the number of rental properties in the market so that this this was the base of the report and i was basically arguing that um if you want to continue to push private landlords out of the market, persist with the current RPZ and taxation environment. If you want to try and grow this part of the rental market, which I believe is desirable, then you need to look seriously at reforming the RPZs and indeed the taxation environment. Yeah, that makes abundant sense to me, Jim. Uh, one of our commenters uh, from our last podcast discussing housing issues made that very point, which is that if a house is rented or if a house is sold, it doesn't matter. It's the the stock of available housing is unchanged. And so therefore there has there is no overall impact on the housing crisis from a housing supply point of view. But of course, what people need to realise is that the two markets, rental and purchase, are often quite segmented, different markets. And some people, for all sorts of reasons, financial constraints or just preferences or just basic need because they're only going to be in an area for a relatively short period of time or whatever, um, only want to rent. So they're an important segment that their needs need to be catered to and for. Um, it, so it's a, a particular point about a more general response to questions we get about housing is that there are m- m- different housing markets. It's not just one market and the complexities are many and varied. And I think that you've sliced them and diced them very well there. So th- thank you for that, and, and a, a lot of food for thought there. Um, but uh, another general point I would make is that, as we've seen in other markets around the world, when you start imposing things like rent caps and other rules and regulations, the consequences of those uh, rules, regulations, rent controls 
are not always what you thought that they were going to be. Um, the, the positive outcome that you desire sometimes or quite often doesn't actually happen. And all you create are lots of anomalies and other problems that you didn't anticipate. That's often yeah. the case when you when you mess around with 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 these kinds of markets. Yeah, Chris, I, I was intrigued last weekend. The Economist magazine had a feature on housing markets, and it was looking at various housing markets around the world to see how vulnerable they would be to higher interest rates and the global economic problems that are now starting to mount. And um, they so they they basically went through country by country and spoke about the characteristics of that market. And when they came to Sweden, they said it was basically the rent market in Sweden is dysfunctional and that the rent controls in place have resulted in a situation where people can be waiting in a queue for nine years for a rental property. So uh, and, and this kind of amazed me, to be honest, I, um, you know, Sweden is typically written up as the utopia. Um, in many ways, um, but I, I didn't realize that its property market was in such a problem at the moment and that the rental component particularly, and uh, this is being attributed to the existence of rent controls. So, you know, if you step in and try and impose those sorts of restrictions in a market, um, it is going to have, um, in many cases, uh, the law of unintended consequences. And uh, that's definitely the case. And in Irish context, the RP said certainly the bill there yeah the, the, the there are some basic rules in economics that uh, i think one always needs needs to be mindful of particularly in an age where truth and facts matter less and less but if you have a scarce resource you can you can either ration it through the price mechanism or through queues there really isn't a third way um and um that just is that's true of health as it is of housing and obviously if it is a scarce resource then you, the point Ronan Lyons made that you quoted there is that you've got to increase resources. And one of the resources in the housing market are private landlords. I mean, the, the, the whole, uh, the reason why le- uh, rentals in the UK are perhaps in slightly better shape in terms of supply anyway, compared to Ireland is the buy-to-let phenomena, which is, you know, not been absent in, in Ireland either. But that's capital coming into the market. Those are resources coming in to the market that might not otherwise have been there. And so the question that should always be asked is, well, if you're going to stop private landlords from being in the housing market, if you're going to turn institutional investors into pariahs and introduce both social and actual rules and regulations to stop them providing capital for increasing resources in the housing market, where's the money going to come from? And of course, if you're Sinn Féin, you would say it has to come from the private taxpayer that's a political position, perfectly legitimate. Whether or not it would work remains to be seen. But that does appear to be where we're going, particularly um, with that opposition party likely to be part of the next government. Let's... Can, can, can I just say, Chris, before we move on, that I launched this report in Buswell's Hotel in Dublin uh, yesterday, and uh, politicians were invited. Um, ono Bryn, Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson, was there before the thing started. Um, he took copious notes throughout. He remained until the very end. He asked a number of questions, made a number of very pertinent points and was really, really constructive. Whereas other politicians from other parties, um, they came in in the middle, missed what was being said, um, made a few statements and then left. 
So it, it, it just shows you um, the professional approach that Bono Brin and Sinn Féin are um, using in their political model. And I, I think the other, the other parties really do need to stand up and um, observe what the party that's writing at 35% in the opinion polls is doing. That's a, that's a very interesting point, Jim. It, it almost sounds, well, it doesn't almost, it sounds as if you are giving credit to Sinn Féin for the effort that they made yesterday. So, the, so that's an interesting development, I must say. I, well, I, well, no, it, it is, Chris. I mean, I, I thought Ronald Brennan's contribution was incredibly constructive. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, and I, did, I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything he said. I agreed with a lot of what he said. But the point was that he was being incredibly constructive. And you would hope that if he is housing minister at some stage, that, you know, he would apply that sort of constructive approach. Um, I, I left the thing actually feeling um, a, a little bit more optimistic about the future than I have been in some time, to be honest. How do you think he would answer that fundamental question about resourcing? Going back to Ronan Lyon's point, the point that I've just made as well, the point that you have made is that if supply of housing and apartments is to increase, the money has to come from somewhere. And Sinn Féin's approach is basically that the money must come from the taxpayer. Um, That's that's not not too simplistic, is it? And I know it's not. It's not. I mean, I I, I would fundamentally disagree on that perspective for a number of other points he was making. Um, You know, he clearly recognises the problem that's in the market and the two-tier market that has evolved in the RPZ scenario um, where you have new and existing landlords uh, earning significantly different rents. Um, he actually did warn about that when RPZs were being introduced. So, you know, he was correct on that point. But uh, as I say, I, I, in, in fairness where it's due, he did adopt a very professional and constructive approach to the thing. And um, agree or disagree, I really appreciate that. I have to say to many politician, and as I say, a number of others from independence and, and I won't mention names and established parties they came in said a few words so as they'd be seen and then left yeah okay fair enough and noted and I think that's an important point and um, credit to you for being so open-minded to listen to what that uh, <laughs> to what owner Bryn um, was talking about because I suppose we could stand accused of being closed-minded at times with our implacable opposition to everything that these men and women have to say so so fair play Jim well done shall we move on Yes. Okay. Um, another market that's in turmoil. Um, if, if Irish housing is in turmoil, then certainly global stock markets are. The US stock market is going up, but mostly down a lot every day. And it is, as we speak, flirting with technically at least classic bear market territory. That is a fall of 20% from its peak. And that's what's happened. The, the NASDAQ, another index of US stock prices, is well through that. It's been in a bear market for a little while now. Um, All sorts of things going on. Everything is connected to everything else. It's the inflation debate. It's the interest rate debate. It's about what's going on in bond markets. A lot of that is being driven by what's been happening in Ukraine. But the the turmoil in in US equities, which really has been going on all year now, um, started with really an anomaly, a huge anomaly being corrected for, oh God, I don't know how many years now, a decade, I suspect, uh, old-fashioned stock market types have been saying the valuation of the US stock market in particular and other stock markets in general has been for the birds and that we are going through another classic stock market bubble. 
And it's the usual stock names that are mentioned in this regard. Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, uh, the techni- what we used to call tech companies. They, they have all sorts of weird classifications these days. Some of these are consumer companies rather than technology companies. Some of them are, are publishing platforms, frankly, rather than tech companies. But the, they have an overall rubric or description of being, being tech. And their valuations, the way we stock market types conventionally measure these things, have been in excess of anything that we've seen for a very, very long time. Very reminiscent of the tech bubble, the dot-com bubble, as it was called, of 22, 23 years ago. So uh, that valuation anomaly for many of these stocks has to a considerable extent been corrected. If you just look at, say, the valuation of Netflix, it's back to where the rest of the stock market is from being at astronomic, stratospheric uh, levels only a year or two ago. So a a lot of the valuation issue has, has gone away. Now, lots of investors describe themselves as value investors. They're in stock markets that you have investors adopt different styles. Warren Buffett is, a, is supposedly a classic value investor. But value investors over the last decade have been crucified. It's been the most miserable place to be because stocks just keep getting expen- more and more expensive until the beginning of this year, of course. And that's the problem with stock markets is that you can point out that something's expensive, but it can stay expensive, not just for years, for decades. But find that this valuation anomaly that people grew fed up even discussing, let alone hearing other people talk, you know, invest on their behalf. Um, it's it, growth investing, the, the, if you like, the flip sides to value, the opposites to value investing has been flavor of the last decade, not just flavor of the month. So that has been what's been driving stock markets up until relatively recently. And some analysts, I think, are noting that the last few days, it's been different. Something else is now going on. Now, one of the things that about analyzing or th- trying to disentangle, decompose stock market movements over quite prolonged periods is that it's an exercise in futility because you don't really know what's going on. In the old days, we were trying to distill what the collective decision of millions of different investors were actually doing and talking about talking about as if you know there was one decision to buy growth stocks, sell value stocks or whatever. Um, these days, that is still true. There are millions of investors still active in stock markets. But more than ever, what you're trying to work out is what the robots have been doing, because an awful lot of the day to day trading is being driven by algorithms by computers with programs that have machine learning built into them and you're trying to figure out what the hell they've been doing which is even more difficult and means that you should attach a health warning to any uh, attempt at analyzing what if anything the last few days or weeks of stock market price action actually means so with that health warning attached it's really interesting to see what some analysts are concluding from the recent price action which is that we've moved on from the elimination of the valuation anomaly that's been around for, as I say, a decade. And that's the interest rate outlook, because the way in which stock markets work is that higher interest rates, particularly long-term interest rates, bond yields, the higher they are, the, the lower valuation should be, particularly for companies whose earnings are well out into the future, so-called growth stocks. But something different, as I say, is being detected in price movements over the last few days. And in a way, it's because everything's going down. This has been an everything sell-off rather than just specifically related to value stocks um, and growth stocks. And 
the, the reason for this is we tentatively conclude the market is now getting really worried about growth out, the growth outlook, about the outlook for the world economy. And this chatter or whispering that we've had for recent weeks of the, is there going to be a global recession is now become a bit of a cacophony and markets are starting to really worry about the economic growth outlook that it really is going to be like the 1970s with low or no growth or even negative growth and high inflation for the foreseeable future, that the only way it gets corrected ultimately with, is with interest rates rocketing up much, much higher than we currently think that they're going to go and that it's going to be awful. As I say, those kinds of interpretations do come with a health warning, but it seems to me that the markets are now pricing in the certainty of a growth slowdown and that's the first time they've done that in a while. And they're now flirting with the idea of recession, um, particularly in the United States, but also globally, particularly in continental Europe, at least. So I have to tell you, Jim, it's looking grim. And um, I would, we, you and I have talked about this before. And we um, have said, for example, one of our podcasts of a few weeks ago was that we thought the stock market was getting the Ukraine crisis wrong and that the stock market deserved to be a lot lower. Well, be careful what you wish for, mate, because that's exactly what's happened. Um, do you think that the market is right to be flirting with the idea that we are heading for a recession? Uh, I, I do, actually, because every single indicator I look at globally at the moment um, does give cause for concern. Um, I know from day to day, bond yields go up and down, but bond yields are you know, close to the highest levels in some time. Um, emerging market debt markets are struggling. The dollar, okay, is weakened a little bit in recent days, but it's still um, relatively strong. Uh, U.S. interest rates are clearly going to have to rise a lot further. Uh, the Bank of England, likewise, is going to have to hike rates further, and uh, the European Central Bank is going to enter that fray probably at the July meeting. And there is a suggestion at this stage that that increase could be um, a half of one percent which will be quite dramatic um, given the perspective of the European Central Bank in recent times. So what we're seeing uh, very definitely is a significant slowdown in the global economy. Inflation is very definitely becoming more embedded. And the 9% rate in the UK this morning, uh, which is likely to go over 10%, um, you know, should, should give deep cause for concern. And it's, it's the same story in the United States. These price pressures are starting to become more embedded in the system. And central bankers will have to take the view, I think they will take the view, that the only way to try and kill off this inflation psychology that's building is to convince people and economic agents that they will raise interest rates to a level sufficient to kill off the inflation expectation in the system. So it, it does appear clear that central banks will now significantly risk global economic outlook in order to fight inflation and try to bring it under control. So that all suggests to me um, a, ver a very, very difficult environment for equity markets. And um, I think it is different than March 2009, because if you think back to March 2009, uh, the world was in tatters at that stage. Uh, but that's it's the first weekend in March 2009, global equity markets basically bottomed out and kept going really up until the end of last year, pretty much uninterrupted. Uh, but what I don't believe we're at a March 2009 situation at the moment. There's still 
way too much negative stuff building. There's way too much uncertainty in the system uh, to reach that situation. So you'd have to think that equity markets are going to get um, significantly weaker and more volatile um, into the future. I note yesterday that um, Melvin Capital Management is shutting down. Uh, this was a $7.8 billion hedge fund that got into serious trouble last year, if you remember, when there was a squeeze by amateur traders um, who organized on Reddit. And GameStop was one of the stocks that they, they targeted at the time. And um, Melvin Capital Management has never recovered from that sort of shock. But uh, I know it's not program trading, but it, it just shows you that there are dynamics in markets now um, that definitely make it more difficult to analyze what's actually going on. But yeah. I, I did think that was a significant event yesterday. So I, I share all of your concerns, Chris, I have to say. Um, I, I'm deeply concerned about the world economy and everything that's happening at the minute. And uh, if, if you believed the Ukraine situation was going to um, resolve itself anytime soon, perhaps you'd have a greater level of optimism. But it's, it's hard to see that happening. Uh, there's a long way to go in this, I think. Yeah, I reason why I gave that health warning about trying to uh, infer from stock price movements what is going on and what is being discounted and what fe- what fears or hopes the market currently has. I think that is a game fraught with uncertainty. And as we know, markets can can plummet without reason and they can soar without apparent reason. And these days you have to guess what the algorithms, not just the way in which they've been programmed by their human creators, but what they're doing to themselves as a part of the machine learning artificial intelligence process. So I've I've long thought that um, forecasting any asset price is that time-honored cliche, a mugs game, and it's uh, particularly so right now. I don't think anybody knows anything about the future at the moment in in many ways. Um, And one has to adopt an almost philosophical position, certainly based on history or awareness of history. And the one thing I am confident is that whenever the turn comes in stock markets, be it here or another 30% lower than we are now, It'll come out of a clear blue sky. There won't be a reason for it. There won't be just um, because, I mean, it would be lovely if it happened, that sudden peace broke out in Ukraine or something like that. It'll be on a day when nothing much happens and stock markets will go up and we'll look back two years later and think, my God, what a buying opportunity that was. We may or may not be there yet, Jim, but um, that day is certainly coming. Um, Chris, I I would agree with you. You know, it's it's, some day for no apparent reason. Marcus decides it has gone far enough and they start to go back up again. Um, I, what, do, what do you think of what's happening on the crypto side at the moment? I mean, it's well, been it, an absolute washout over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and that's consistent with everything that we have been saying. I, I don't want to do and I told you so, because again, crypto logically is another asset about which you, know, you shouldn't have too strong a view about the future. I've always noted the evangelical views of, of crypto enthusiasts and wondered where that evangelicalism comes from um, in terms of the usual fundamentals, things like valuation that we apply, valuation techniques we apply to stock markets. These rules don't apply to crypto. So uh, I've always been a skeptic and I know you have too. So we've not been surprised to see Bitcoin pretty much halve in price from its, from its high. Um, and it's proving to be just another risk asset. It's, it's behaving just like a technology stock actually. So 
Um, the the other thing to remember is that crypto is is I suspect where all the lever well a lot of the leverage the borrowing the reason why is the reason why we had a financial crisis last time is that people borrowed money to buy houses and one of the suspicions I have is that people have borrowed money to buy crypto and I think that must be causing a lot of pain out there I hope it doesn't cause the same amount of pain for the banking system but uh, it certainly is one of the favorites that I have in the frame for where. Uh, problems are occurring right now. Jim, we've only got a couple of minutes left and I wanted to change the subject completely. We're not going to get through anywhere near all our agenda as usual, but I saw a headline on Bloomberg this morning and I expect you haven't seen it because it was buried away. But the headline was, and I'll quote you it now, on a Dublin back street, the hub of Russian finance quietly falls apart. Did you see that headline? I didn't actually know. No, um, it, it wasn't a high profile story, but it wasn't exactly the sort of headline I expected to see. And um, it's not about anything wrong or anything illegal, but it, Bloomberg have done an investigation of a company that it said was called Cafico International, I think it was. And I apologize if I've got that wrong. Operating in Dublin, apparently set up to um, set up shell companies, special purpose vehicles, SPVs, they're called in the trade to raise funds for Russians and Russian entities. And they would raise lots of cash, usually by borrowing, issuing bonds or loans, um, make, taking out loans of one kind or another. And it turns out that these special SPVs uh, were raised that Russian entities quite legally raised foreign currency. And they, they're all running into trouble now because a lot of the loan repayments uh, because of this, partly because of sanctions are, are struggling to be made. And it, it's, quite a story actually the, the amounts of money quoted in this story are absolutely huge so again an unintended or unanticipated consequence of the war in Ukraine of which there are so many a second one I wanted to mention today is that we've talked about soaring inflation prices and shortages and all the rest of it we began talking about shortages I think over a year ago of silicon chips now one of the key ingredients or inputs into the creation of semiconductors chips is a, a, something called a noble gas and the noble gas concerned is neon and neon yeah. is a byproduct mostly of steel production and guess what steel plant produced an awful lot of neon for the world's semiconductor companies the one in Azovstal the one that is currently being bombed to bits yes yes and so uh, there could well be a renewed twist to the semiconductor shortage story. Perhaps it's not definite um, because one of the key inputs into its into chip manufacturers are now in short supply because Azovstal is not producing neon as a byproduct of its steel production. So there are just all sorts of these things going on. And I, I think that, uh, um, you know, we are in for a very, very difficult, if not very difficult time ahead. Yeah, lots of, lots of uncertainty. Uh, I, I leave you with a thought, Chris. Um, it's a while since we've discussed UK politics in any significant way, but Bank of England uh, reported the other day that on its estimates, Brexit is costing the UK economy 444 million euro a week. Uh, that works out at 23 billion. Did I say euro? I meant yes, sterling. You meant that pounds, I know. That works out at twenty-three billion pounds sterling in a full year. I mean, it's mad stuff, and yet Boris continues to go on with this nonsense. Put, put, uh, you couldn't make it up. And of course, Liz Truss, Liz Truss 
talk about the Irish selling turnips out of the back of trucks was that was a, that was a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. Absolute I agree, disgrace, but uh, it's just, just it's all mad. Anyway, Chris, <laughs> what can you say? I'll leave you go. Good hey, talk as always, Jim. Speak soon. See you, bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.